Section twenty six of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Siena, early and late. One. Florence being oppressively hot and delivered over to the mosquitoes, the occasion seemed to favour that visit to Siena, which I had more than once planned and missed. I arrived late in the evening by the light of a magnificent moon, and while a couple of benignantly mumbling old crones were making up my bed at the inn, strolled forth in quest of a first impression. Five minutes brought me to where I might gather it unhindered, as it bloomed in the white moonshine. The great piazza of Siena is famous and though in this day of multiplied photographs and blunted surprises and profaned revelations, none of the world's wonders can pretend, like Wordsworth's phantom of delight, really to startle and waylay. Yet, as I stepped upon the waiting scene from under a dark archway, I was conscious of no loss of the edge of a precious presented sensibility, the waiting scene, as I have called it, was in the shape of a shallow horseshoe, as the untravelled reader, who has turned over his travelled friend's portfolios, will respectfully remember, or better, of a bow in which the high wide face of the Palazzo Publico forms the cord, and everything else the arc. It was void of any human presence that could figure to me the current year, so that, the moonshine assisting, I had half an hour's infinite vision of medieval Italy. The piazza being built on the side of a hill, or rather, as I believe science affirms, in the cup of a volcanic crater, the vast pavement converges downwards in slanting radiations of stone the spokes of a great wheel, to a point directly before the palazzo, which may mark the hub, though it is nothing more ornamental than the mouth of a drain. The great monument stands on the lower side, and might seem, in spite of its goodly mass and its embattled corners, to be rather defiantly out-countenanced by vast private constructions occupying the opposite eminence. This might be, without the extraordinary dignity of the architectural gesture with which the huge, high-shouldered pile asserts itself on the firm edge of the palace, from bracketed base to grey-capped summit against the sky, where grows a tall, slim tower, which soars and soars, till it has given notice of the city's greatness over the blue mountains, that mark the horizon. It rises as slender and straight as a pennant lance planted on the steel-shod toe of a mounted knight, and keeps all to itself in the blue air, far above the changing fashions of the market, the proud consciousness, or rare arrogance, once built into it. This beautiful tower, the finest thing in Siena, and in its rigid fashion, as permanently fine thus as a really handsome nose on the face of 
no matter what accumulated age, figures there still as a declaration of independence, beside which such an affair as ours, thrown off at Philadelphia, appears to have scarce done more than helplessly give way to time. Our independence has become a dependence on a thousand such dreadful things as the incorrupt declaration of Siena strikes us as looking forever straight over the level of. As it stood silvered by the moonlight while my greeting lasted, it seemed to speak, all as from soul to soul, very much indeed as some ancient worthy of a lower order, buttonholing one on the coveted chance and at the quiet hour, might have done of a state of things long and vulgarly superseded, but to the pride and power, the once prodigious vitality of which, who could expect any one effect to testify more incomparably, more indestructibly, quite, as it were, more immortally. The gigantic houses enclosing the rest of the piazza took up the tale and mingled with it their burden. We are very old and a trifle weary, but we were built strong and piled high, and we shall last for many an age. The present is cold and heedless, but we keep ourselves in heart by brooding over our store of memories and traditions. We are haunted houses in every creaking timber and aching stone. Such were the gossiping connections I established with Siena before I went to bed. Since that night, I've had a week's daylight knowledge of the surface of the subject at least, and don't know how I can better present it than simply as another and vivider page of the lesson that the ever-hungry artist has only to trust old Italy for her to feed him at every single step from her hand. And if not with one sort of sweetly stale grain from that wondrous mill of history which during so many ages ground finer than any other on earth, why then always but something else. Siena has at any rate preserved appearances, kept the greatest number of them, that is, unaltered for the eye, about as consistently as one can imagine the thing done. Other places perhaps may treat you to as drowsy an odour of antiquity, but few exhale it from so large an area. Lying massed within her walls on a dozen clustered hilltops, she shows you at every turn in how much greater a way she once lived. And if so much of the grand manor is extinct, the receptacle of the ashes still solidly rounds itself. This heavy general stress of all her emphasis on the past is what she constantly keeps in your eyes and your ears. And if you be but a casual observer and admirer, the generalised response is mainly what you give her. The casual observer, however beguiled, is mostly not very learned, not over-equipped in advance with data. He hasn't specialised. His notions are necessarily vague. The cords of his imagination, for all his goodwill, are inevitably muffled and weak. But such as it is, his received, his welcome impression, serves his turn, 
so far as the life of sensibility goes, and reminds him from time to time that even the law of German doctors is but the shadow of satisfied curiosity. I have been living at the inn, walking about the streets, sitting in the piazza. These are the simple terms of my experience, but streets and inns in Italy are the vehicles of half one's knowledge. If one has no fancy for their lessons, one may burn one's notebook. In Siena, everything is Sienese. The inn has an English sign over the door, a little battered plate with a rusty representation of the lion and the unicorn, but advance hopefully into the mouldy stone alley which serves as vestibule, and you will find local colour enough. The landlord, I was told, had been servant in an English family, and I was curious to see how he met the probable argument of the casual Anglo-Saxon after the latter's first twelve hours in his establishment. As he failed to appear, I asked the waiter if he weren't at home. Oh, said the latter, he's a piccolo grasso vecchiotto who doesn't like to move. I'm afraid this little fat old man has simply a bad conscience. It's no small burden for one who likes the Italians, as who doesn't under this restriction, to have so much indifference even to rudimentary purifying processes to dispose of. What is the real philosophy of dirty habits? And are foul surfaces merely superficial? If unclean manners have in truth the moral meaning which I suspect in them, we must love Italy better than consistency. This a number of us are prepared to do. But while we are making the sacrifice, it is as well we should be aware. We may plead, moreover, for these impecunious heirs of the past, that even if it were easy to be clean in the midst of their mouldering heritage, it would be difficult to appear so. At the risk of seeming to flaunt the silly superstition of restless renovation for the sake of renovation, which is but the challenge of the infinitely precious principle of duration, one is still moved to say that the prime result of one's contemplative strolls in the dusky alleys of such a place is an ineffable sense of disrepair. Everything is cracking, peeling, fading, crumbling, rotting. No young Sienese eyes rest upon anything youthful, they open into a world battered and befouled with long use. Everything has passed its meridian, except the brilliant façade of the cathedral, which has been diligently retouched and restored, and a few private palaces whose broad fronts seem to have been lately furbished and polished. Siena was long ago mellowed to the pictorial tone. The operation of time is now to deposit shabbiness upon shabbiness. But it's for the most part a patient, sturdy, sympathetic shabbiness which soothes rather than irritates the nerves 
and has in many cases doubtless as long a career to run as most of our pert and shallow freshnesses. It projects at all events a deeper shadow into the constant twilight of the narrow streets, that vague historic dusk, as I may call it, in which one walks and wanders. These streets are hardly more than sinuous flagged alleys, into which the huge black houses, between their almost meeting cornices, suffer a meagre light to filter down over a rough-hewn stone, past windows often of graceful Gothic form, and great pendant iron rings, and twisted sockets for torches. Scattered over their many-headed hill, they suffer the roadway often to incline to the perpendicular, becoming so impracticable for vehicles that the sound of wheels is only a trifle less anomalous than it would be in Venice. But all day long there comes up to my window an incessant shuffling of feet and clangour of voices. The weather is very warm for the season, all the world is out of doors, and the Tuscan tongue, which in Siena is reputed to have a classic purity, wags in every imaginable key. It doesn't rest even at night, and I am often an uninvited guest at concerts and conversazioni at two o'clock in the morning. The concerts are sometimes charming. I not only don't curse my wakefulness, but go to my window to listen. Three men come carolling by, trolling and quavering with voices of delightful sweetness, or a lonely troubadour in his shirt-sleeves draws such artful love-notes from his clear, fresh tenor that I seem for the moment to be behind the scenes at the opera, watching some Rubini or Mario go on, and waiting for the round of applause. In the intervals, a couple of friends, or enemies, stop. Italians always make their points in conversation by pulling up, letting you walk on a few paces to turn and find them standing with finger on nose and engaging your interrogative eye. They pause by happy instinct directly under my window and dispute their point or tell their story or make their confidence. One scarce is sure which it may be. Everything has such an explosive promptness, such a redundancy of inflection and action. But everything, for that matter, takes on such dramatic life as our lame colloquies never know, so that almost any uttered communications here become an acted play, improvised, mimicked, proportioned and rounded, carried bravely to its denouement. The speaker seems actually to establish his stage and face his footlights, to create by a gesture a little scenic circumscription about him. He rushes to and fro and shouts and stamps and postures. He ranges through every phase of his inspiration. I noted the other evening a striking instance of the spontaneity of the Italian gesture in the person of a small Sienese, of I hardly know what exact age, the age of inarticulate sounds and the experimental use of a spoon. It was a Sunday evening, and this little man had accompanied his parents to the cafe. 
The Café Greco at Siena is a most delightful institution. You get a capital demi-tasse for three sous, and an excellent ice for eight, and while you consume these easy luxuries, you may buy from a little hunchback the local weekly periodical, the Vita Nuova, for three centimes. The two centimes left from your sous, if you are under the spell of this magical frugality, will do to give the waiter. My young friend was sitting on his father's knee and helping himself to the half of a strawberry ice with which his mamma had presented him. He had so many misadventures with his spoon that this lady at length confiscated it, there being nothing left of the ice but a little crimson liquid which he might dispose of by the common instinct of childhood. But he was no friend, it appeared, to such freedoms. He was a perfect little gentleman, and he resented it being expected of him that he should drink down his remnant. He protested, therefore, and it was the manner of his protest that struck me. He didn't cry audibly, though he made a very wry face. It was no stupid squall, and yet he was too young to speak. It was a penetrating concord of inarticulately pleading, accusing sounds, accompanied by gestures of the most exquisite propriety. These were perfectly mature. He did everything that a man of forty would have done if he'd been pouring out a flood of sonorous eloquence. He shrugged his shoulders and wrinkled his eyebrows, tossed out his hands and folded his arms, obtruded his chin and bobbed about his head, and at last, I'm happy to say, recovered his spoon. If I had had a solid little silver one, I would have presented it to him as a testimonial to a perfect, though as yet unconscious, artist. My actual tribute to him, however, has diverted me from what I had in mind, a much weightier matter. The great private palaces, which are the massive majestic syllables, sentences, periods of the strange message the place addresses to us. They are extraordinarily spacious and numerous, and one wonders what part they can play in the meagre economy of the actual city. The Siena of today is a mere shrunken semblance of the rabid little republic which in the 13th century waged triumphant war with Florence cultivated the arts with splendour, planned a cathedral, though it had ultimately to curtail the design of proportions almost unequalled, and contained a population of 200,000 souls. Many of these dusky piles still bear the names of the old medieval magnates, the vague mild occupancy of whose descendants has the effect of armour of proof worn over pot hats and tweed jackets and trousers. Half a dozen of them are as high as the Strozzi and Riccardi palaces in Florence. They couldn't well be higher. The very essence of the romantic and the scenic is in the way these colossal dwellings are packed together in their steep streets, in the depths of their little enclosed agglomerated city. When we in our day and country raise a structure of half the mass and dignity, 
we leave a great space about it, in the manner of a pause after a showy speech. But when a Sienese countess, as things are here, is doing her hair near the window, she is a wonderfully near neighbour to the cavalier opposite, who is being shaved by his valet. Possibly the countess doesn't object to a certain chosen publicity at her toilette. What does an Italian gentleman assure me but that the aristocracy make very free with each other? Some of the palaces are shown, but only when the occupants are at home, and now they are in villeggiatura. The villeggiatura lasts eight months of the year, the waiter at the inn informs me, and they spend little more than the carnival in the city. The gossip of an inn waiter ought, perhaps, to be beneath the dignity of even such thin history as this, but I confess that when, as a story-seeker, always and ever, I've come in from my strolls with an irritated sense of the dumbness of stones and mortar. It has been to listen with avidity over my dinner to the proffered confidences of the worthy man who stands by with a napkin. His talk is really very fine, and he prides himself greatly on his cultivated tone, to which he calls my attention. He has very little good to say about the Sienese nobility. They are proprio d'origine egoista, whatever that may be. And there are many who can't write their names. This may be calumny, but I doubt whether the most blameless of them all could have spoken more delicately of a lady of a peculiar personal appearance who had been dining near me. She's too fat, I grossly said on her leaving the room. The waiter shook his head with a little sniff. E troppo materiale. This lady and her companion were the party whom, thinking I might relish a little company, I had been dining alone for a week, he gleefully announced to me as newly arrived Americans. They were Americans, I found, who wore pinned to their heads in permanence the black lace veil or mantilla, conveyed their beans to their mouth with a knife, and spoke a strange, raucous Spanish. They were, in fine, compatriots from Montevideo. The genius of old Siena, however, would make little of any stress of such distinctions. One representative of a far-off social platitude being about as much in order as another as he stands before the great lodger of the Casino dei Nobili, the club of the best society. The nobility, which is very numerous and very rich, is still, says the apparently competent native I began by quoting, perfectly feudal and uplifted and separate. Morally and intellectually, behind the walls of its palaces, the 14th century, it's thrilling to think, hasn't ceased to hang on. There is no bourgeoisie to speak of. Immediately after the aristocracy come the poor people, who are very poor indeed. My friend's account of these matters made me wish more than ever as a lover of the preserved social specimen, of type, at almost any price, that one weren't a helpless victim of the historic sense, reduced simply 
to staring at black stones and peeping up stately staircases, and that when one had examined the street face of the palace, Murray in hand, one might walk up to the great drawing-room, make one's bow to the master and mistress, the old abbe and the young count, and invite them to favour one with a sketch of their social philosophy, or a few first-hand family anecdotes. The dusky labyrinth of the streets we must, in default of such initiations, content ourselves with noting, is interrupted by two great candid spaces, the fan-shaped piazza, of which I just now said a word, and the smaller square in which the cathedral erects its walls of many-coloured marble. Of course, since paying the great piazza my compliments by moonlight, I have strolled through it often at sunnier and shadier hours. The market is held there, and wherever Italians buy and sell, wherever they count and chaffer, as indeed you hear them do right and left, at almost any moment, as you take away among them, the pulse of life beats fast. It has been doing so on the spot just named, I suppose, for the last five hundred years. And during that time, the cost of eggs and earthen pots has been gradually but inexorably increasing. The buyers, nevertheless, wrestle over their purchases as lustily as so many 14th-century burghers, suddenly waking up in horror to current prices. You have but to walk aside, however, into the Palazzo Pubblico, really, to feel yourself a thrifty old medievalist. The state affairs of the Republic were formerly transacted here, but now it gives shelter to modern law courts and other prosy business. I was marched through a number of vaulted halls and chambers, which, in the intervals of the administrative sessions held in them, are peopled only by the great mouldering archaic frescoes. Anything but inanimate these, even in their present ruin, that cover the walls and ceiling. The chief painters of the Sienese school lent a hand in producing the works I name, and you may complete there the commissarship in which possibly you will have embarked at the academy. I say possibly to be very judicial, my own observation having led me no great length, I have rather than otherwise cherished the thought that the Sienese school suffers one's eagerness peacefully to slumber, benignantly abstains, in fact, from whipping up a languid curiosity and a tepid faith. A formidable rival to the Florentine, says some book, I forget which, into which I recently glanced. Not a bit of it, thereupon boldly say I. The Florentines may rest on their laurels, and the lounger on his lounge. The early painters of the two groups have indeed much in common, but the Florentines had the good fortune to see their efforts gathered up and applied by a few preeminent spirits, such as never came to the rescue of the groping Sienese. Fra Angelico and Ghirlandaio said all their feebler confrères dreamt of, and a great deal more beside, but the inspiration of Simone Memi and Ambrogio Lorenzetti and Sonno di Pietro has a painful air of never efflorescing into a maximum. 
Sodoma and Vecofumi are to my taste a rather abortive maximum. But one should speak of them all gently, and I do, from my soul, for their labour by their lights has wrought a precious heritage of still living colour and rich figure people to shadow by the echoing chambers of their old civic fortress. The faded frescoes cover the walls like quaintly storied tapestries. In one way or another they cast their spell. If one owes a large debt of pleasure to pictorial art, one comes to think tenderly and easily of its whole evolution, as of the conscious experience of a single mysterious striving spirit and one shrinks from saying rude things about any particular phase of it just as one would from referring without precautions to some error or lapse in the life of a person one esteemed you don't care to remind a grizzled veteran of his defeats and why should we linger in siena to talk about becca fumi I by no means go so far as to say, with an amateur with whom I have just been discussing the matter, that Sodoma is a precious poor painter, and Beccofumi no painter at all, but opportunity being limited, I am willing to let the remark about Beccofumi pass for true. With regard to Sodoma, I remember seeing four years ago in the choir of the Cathedral of Pisa a certain small dusky specimen of the painter, an Abraham and Isaac, if I'm not mistaken, which was charged with a gloomy grace. One rarely meets him in general collections, and I had never done so till the other day. He was not prolific, apparently. He had, however, his own elegance, and his rarity is a part of it. End of section 26